Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please subscribe to the show on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review if you have the time. Richard is off this episode, but I was joined by Nico Espina as my co-host. Listeners might remember Nico from episodes 9 and 10 of the show. And we're pleased to say Nico will be joining Dialogue De Novo next semester as a third host. Nico ran a little bit late getting to this interview, but due to time constraints, I started the interview anyway. So you'll be hearing Nico join the conversation at roughly the 10-minute mark. Okay, on to today's show. Today we are joined by Seth Johnson. Seth is a second-year law student at Loyola Chicago. He is co-president of the Christian Legal Society and vice president of the Federalist Society. An important note, Seth's views represented on this show do not reflect those of both the Christian Legal Society and the Federalist Society. Seth has neither the authority nor any will to represent these organizations. Seth came on the show to discuss originalism and his ideas on constitutional interpretation. He's extremely knowledgeable and a very well-read guy, and it was a pleasure having him on the show. Seth is a pretty middle-of-the-road guy, and I think skeptics of originalism will be surprised by what he has to say. So, without any further ado, give it up for the great and powerful Seth Johnson. All right, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I am sitting here today with Seth Johnson. Seth, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a little bit of background stuff because we actually just met. I, I know very little about you, but you sent me an interesting email where you talked about studying German and you spoke some German during the sound test. It was some freaky stuff. So <laughs> what's, what's with the German stuff? Well, um, the German stuff is simply that in... I, in middle school, I, I tried to learn Spanish, and that was all a horrible, terrible failure. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I still figured it was very important to learn a language. Uh, Spanish clearly wasn't going to be it, so I was lucky enough to go to a high school that offered German, uh, Hebrew, a um, couple of languages you don't often see, and I decided to try German out because I remember I uh, I had like a summer German course once in middle school with the German teacher. And I remember having a good time with it. So I was like, why not? I'll, I'll give it a shot. I did. And it just sort of clicked. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, German just came very, very naturally to me. I went over there in exchange and, you know, now I can more or less speak it. <laughs> so how much has religion and Catholicism played into your choices in terms of your schooling? Because I know you went to Marquette and now you're here at Loyola, that's a Jesuit university. Marquette's also Jesuit, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how much has that determined the path that you're going to take and, uh, or that you have, have taken and where you see yourself going? Well, in terms of my life, I, I try to say that the hierarchy is uh, first it's faith, then it's family, then it's country. Those are kind of like the three things. That's that I, your Maslow's hierarchy. Of yeah, I kind of, I kind of, yeah, hold to that. 
But when it comes to my specific educational choices, um, Marquette was really kind of an unhappy accident because I was originally an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota Morris, mm. which was a decision I made completely out of pride because um, my only other option, the only other school I got into was the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And both my parents worked there and I was like, I'll be damned if I <laughs> am going to go to the same school that my parents live at. Yeah, so I'm catching catching lunch together in the mess yeah, all that. No way. <laughs> so I, I was like, I'm going to go on my own. Well, I ended up having a miserable time and it kind of I always consider myself to be a left-wing person, but when I got to Morris, which is a liberal arts college for very left-wing kids from the Minneapolis suburbs, I was like, oh, you know, um, maybe not. <laughs> maybe maybe this, this isn't what I believe. Were you studying German at that time? Or were you I was. Uh, did, did you have another major or was it just strictly ger- a diet of German? Uh, I was, so I, I have a dual degree. I'm poli-sci oh, right, right, German. Right. So. Yeah, you mentioned that. Well, um, so yeah. is poli-sci really infiltrated by the left-wing ideology? I mean, I know that a lot of the humanities kind of are producing these kids. And this is something that I rail on all the time is that academia has become an ideology and they're kind of turned into this machine work of kids coming out who spout the same things and who sound the same and believe all the same. I, I, how has poli been affected by that? Well, I can say that at Morris, there definitely was some of that mm. uh, to a certain extent. I think in general, Marxist and proto-Marxist or neo, however you want to phrase it, things that are essentially the philosophical guts of Marxism, but mm-hmm. you know, are are pretty deeply entrenched in most areas of academia outside like right. the hard sciences. But at Marquette, I was actually pleasantly surprised that the political science department there was very balanced, mm-hmm. um, very talented. Not to say that there weren't talented, great professors at Morris, but at Marquette, there was a sense of honor and pride. And I think the professors there take themselves very seriously and take their work very seriously and strive to be really objective. Right. As um, they should. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if you know Nick Zausch. He was on the show. And he went to Marquette, if I think I'm, remembering, I'm remembering correctly. I actually think he went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, oh okay. All right. And I, so funny thing about him is we I actually went to high school with his sister. No way. Yeah. Dude, are you kidding? <laughs> no. It's a small world. It's, it's a small Wisconsin's world. Wisconsin's a small world. I, I think Wisconsin <laughs> is like, like five people there. <laughs> it's like the Kevin Bacon state. Like, I mean, you know, you're only ever a couple of degrees away from somebody you know. Oh, that's eerie. I don't think I like that. <laughs> uh, so we were talking a little bit before we started the uh, show about your political affiliations and you said some things that are really interesting and then this should take us up to the time where Nico's finally going to get here and then we can dive into the originalism stuff but let's go over where you stand in terms of the political map I know that you said that you don't really feel like you have a home in the way that we we really only have two baskets here in the United States in terms of ideology we have the progressivism versus conservatism where do you lie in a way that people are going to understand uh, economics is probably where I am the most bipartisan because on one hand, I'm very, very supportive of a robust uh, welfare state. Um, I believe the country should, I believe we should have guaranteed paid vacations. I think we should have more generous parent leave. I think we should make sure that nobody has to worry about whether or not they're getting enough healthy food to eat, whether they have a roof over their head. So I, I do believe that's something that government should do fundamentally. On the other hand, I am a very big fan of free market capitalism. And so I do end up supporting a lot of 
what you might say laissez-faire policies, even to the point where I come into conflict with a lot of more moderate conservatives on the issue, mm-hmm. because I feel a lot of moderate conservatives are very open towards government interference with the economy if it's tor- if it's going towards things that they like, such as the military, yeah. propping up a bank. My view is this. Capitalism... is <laughs> a bit of a jab. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, my view is this. Capitalism only works the way that it's supposed to if there's real competition. Mm. And and so you'll find me siding with some pretty hardcore libertarian people sometimes when they say we need to get government out of this entirely. No more subsidies, uh, no more tax breaks. You either you either, you know, succeed on the merits of your business model and what the product that you're able to provide uh, or the service or you don't. And if you don't succeed, I'm sorry. I don't care if it hurts the economy a little bit. You got to go. Otherwise, otherwise, what are we doing capitalism for? If it is not setting the, the successful and the good from the bad and the unsuccessful, then there's no point to it. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think we find agreement on that in terms of you should have a, as much of a hands off approach to the market as you possibly can. Like I told you before, I'm a laissez faire Milton Friedman kind of guy. Yeah. The welfare state, I think we would disagree a little bit on. It, it almost sounds like what you're talking about in terms of a free market with sort of this really lofty and heavy social structure built on top of it is almost like the Nordic countries that Bernie Sanders cites to so much. I mean, they're fiercely capitalistic countries, but they have such a profound social safety net that they appear more socialist or egalitarian than they actually are. I would say that's pretty similar. However, I definitely prefer the German model to the Nordic model because I think... Go figure. Yeah, well, you know, I am, of course, biased, but I think the German model... I think the German model takes economic liberty a little bit more seriously than the Nordic model. The Nordic model kind of, in, in some ways, turns the economy into simply a means to an end, not at all about whether or not there's a fundamental right to participate in an economy, whereas mm. I think the Germans care about that more. And you see that with Germany actually having some laxer regu- economic regulations uh, than the United States even in some areas, mm. uh, where you know, sort of securities and, and things of that nature are not quite as tightly regulated in Germany. It's sometimes easier to transfer to make transfers of, of uh, economic products than, than it is here. And, and some of the way that taxes are done, corporate taxes, for instance, I think are lower in Germany. I don't know if that's still the case, but they were not that long ago. Mm. You know, so that that's that's sort of what I mean is I, I think there is a fundamental right uh, part of our liberty interest uh, to engage in economic activity. And I don't know if the Nordic countries necessarily view it that way. No, I, I think I actually I like the distinction that you drew that. They actually believe in economics and freedom of contract and to enter into transactions and to go, go, go and to be swift in Germany. Because uh, I think that that's actually something that I'd like to criticize a lot of conservatives about or Republicans, if we're talking in an establishment sense, is that there's sort of been this regression towards Ludditism in the age of technology in terms of the Republican and conservative movement. I mean, even Tucker Carlson now says that he would like to stop the advent of self-driving cars in favor of preserving jobs for truckers uh, that's just just a historically illiterate position to take i mean it, like we'd still be driving horse-drawn carriages down the street if we took that position like whatever happened to all those horse-drawn carriage drivers like come on <laughs> so i think that actually this is some place where we find common cause so let me start to frame the conversation that we're going to have about originalism i hope i didn't misunderstand your email when you 
wrote it, but are you a proponent of originalism? Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I've come to realize that you don't have as you know monolithic a political ideology as I thought. So, <laughs> which no offense on that, but so oh, here's our co-host. back and now my co-host Nico Espina is here. Nico, say hi so everybody knows your voice. Hey, how's everyone doing? You guys might remember him from episodes 9 and 10. And now we're going to talk about originalism. So, Seth. Yes. I'm going to just go over what I said before the break, which was that I didn't want to misunderstand your position on originalism. So why don't you tell me what your brand of originalism is and how you conceptualize it and why you favor it over other forms of constitutional interpretation? Um, well, I'm an original meaning uh, originalist, not not original intent. All right, so why don't you illuminate the listeners on the difference between the two? So original meaning originalism, um, when we're interpreting um, when we're con- interpreting the Constitution, we look to you know when was that part of the Constitution written? We look to the words that are used, and we look to what how those words would have been understood at the time that they were, uh, you know, ratified into the constitution. Um, whereas the original intent originalism is we would not, we would primarily, we would try to find not only, uh, what the meaning of the commonly understood meaning of the words at the time were, but we would look to see what, what was the intention of the people using the words in using those words, uh, in, in drafting the constitution. And if that sounds convoluted, I think it's because it is. And that's probably why I don't favor that. Well, I mean, to an extent, it sort of feels like tea leave reading. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, so the distinction, I think, is a little bit of a semantic one, but it's, wouldn't we just infer that the intent of the words they used is the same as the common meaning at the time? I mean, are the two really that doctrinally different? I think so, because I think with original intent... It's it's essentially asking us to try and psychoanalyze people who have been dead for a really long time. But not only people who have been dead really long time, but also the community around those people from which, you know, their understanding of the world and of language derived. And I, I think that's way harder to do, probably impossible to do. Whereas when it comes to the words, we don't have to do so much guesswork. We don't have to do so much estimation. We we just we we have an abundant source of texts from you know the earliest constitutional provisions are from the 1780s and uh you know so we have an abundance of texts from all different kinds of uh works science history whatever that can really help us uh especially now that we have com- good computer technology we can actually you know put all of these words in a computer program and, and we can actually analyze how often certain words that are used in the constitution in works at the time that those provisions were drafted, we can analyze how often those words appeared and in what context. And that allows us to, I think with a much higher degree of accuracy, get to the bottom of what was going on, you know, at the time that it was written. So originalism is often championed as the most rational or the most 
forthright and predictable version of constitutional interpretation. But in reference to the text at the time that would help to illuminate the meaning of words, isn't there still a subjective po a component to it where you choose which text to analyze and which ones to exclude? Well, I think probably probably if we wanted to be as accurate as we as we possibly could, we would, uh, especially for statistical purposes, we would want to get the broadest, biggest, most uh, significant sample that we possibly could get. Probably our decision to exclude certain text would the the bright line we would have to meet in order to justify excluding a certain kind of text would have to be very well justified, right? Like this, this text is a complete oddball and has no rational relation to anything. And it is, it, and this text is coming from a community or a person who was completely not in step with the times, who was not part of the particular cultural context at all. This is completely contrary to it. Then we might exclude that text, but that ends up, I think, being much more easier to do than uh, trying to figure out what an intent is or also saying that, you know, being picky and choosy about which um, texts we're going to use to conduct this analysis. <clears throat> so why is it that we've, we've kind of explained, we've given a primer on what uh, originalism is. Why is it that it's your choice of constitutional interpretations? A um, couple of reasons. I think first there is that um, there's a surface level thing I think that you bring up, which is, I think it's the most rational and objective. It's the closest I think we can get to a science of interpretation. And, you know, I would, f I would favor, I, I think reason and also, you know, good sense would favor an interpretation that isn't going to constantly be shifting or subject democratic pressures or majoritarian impulses. I think, I think that which is, you know, most easy to pin down is going to be the most clear and most efficacious. And that, in, you know, is intrinsically preferable, I think. The other more subjective reason is this. I, as a conservative, and in a, the traditional sense of that word, conservative, not in the perhaps American context of what that means, I view government society as sort of, I, I view government as an organic uh, product or an organic expression of a particular people, of a particular society. And I think originalism is key to honoring that conceptualization of government. I think that government must reflect the people and the traditions of the society uh, from which it uh, emanates. And I think originalism is the only way to make sure that the law is representative of the people and their culture, their tradition, rather than a particular person or a particular group of people within the society that may not be representative of that society at all. So this is sort of the, uh, the Justice Nino Scalia view of coupling originalism with a fear of judicial activism. Yeah, a fear of judicial activism, but probably more importantly, what judicial activism represents, which is the, in my view, the reckless, the reckless proclamation that my will be done and the rest of you can deal with that regardless about what you feel about it. Not, I am a custodian as a, as a judge or a legislator or an executor. I think fundamentally your role is to be a custodian of the great power of representation that you've been granted by your people, your society, your culture, your job is to be a custodian of that and to be true to that 
and I and I think that judicial activists is pretty much spitting on that idea. It's saying all I need to do is get enough of you to put me in this chair so that I can then tell you what I think you should do. Well, I mean, I have I obviously agree with you on most, if not all of that. But for the purposes of making an interesting show to listen to, I'm going to ask some probing questions. <clears throat> Can't originalism? I mean, uh, I think Justice Scalia kind of felt a victim to this sometimes that he was a victim of his own solipsism uh, and by that I mean like he was so glued to the idea of original meaning and the words on the page and what words were eventually assented to in drafting the Constitution that he kind of neglected to take into consideration sometimes these broader traditions of the law and we we talked about this in the first half which were you know we talked about freedom of contract and property rights and uh, things like that and I think that he sometimes wrote decisions in a way where he wasn't paying any due to our tradition of English common law and from that Roman law. Do you see that? Like, I, and I think for that reason, we, he always admitted that he was kind of a fairly soft originalist, but he, he kind of got held up in a trap and he was so afraid of judicial activism that he would not turn over stare decisis that was eminently not in line with the constitution. Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, well, I think I think Justice Scalia actually did have a lot of respect for the tradition of the common law, and I think that's I, I think that's precisely why he oftentimes would not participate in overturning something. Do I agree with that? I think that's a real toughie for me. I, I, I have to say, I don't know that I have on the spot a really good answer for solving that conflict. Because on the one hand, you have your document, you have your constitution, which I believe needs to be very stringently adhered to. And on the other hand, you do have this more nebulous common law tradition. And both of these things, I, I, I honestly do believe that, both of these things are very much uh, intimate, organic products of our society, our culture, our people. It's tough. And I, uh, if I had a, you know, I don't have any, I don't have an easy answer to dealing with that conflict. I really don't. But I would say that the strength of the originalist position is that at least there's a standard by which you can evaluate what you're doing. At least you can say either, either my opinion or my decision is or isn't consistent with either the common law or the constitution. There's a standard and either you meet it or you don't. Whereas with whatever the heck more liberal judges are doing, I don't, there's no standard by which to measure them on. They could do one thing on Monday. They could do another Tuesday and I would have no basis by which to critique them against their own standard because they don't have one. Um, and I think that's that's fundamentally why, regardless of the imperfections of originalism, I think it's always better to default to it because at least we know, at least we have a way to say either it is or it isn't compliant. I want to go back to when you were talking about at the beginning what original meaning means and uh, how it's important to look at the historical context. But I'd like to pick a little bit more on the founders and the framers' intent. Is it to say that what they intended or what we think that they intended does not matter at all? Or does it play even a minimal role in interpreting? Even if you're using a purely rational statistical method of analysis, like you mentioned, it, it only will get you so far. And I think intent interpretation is still going to play somewhat of a role. So how would this fit in your framework? Uh, I think that's a good point. And certainly 
certainly I don't think you can completely ignore what, uh, you know, the intent of the drafters was. I don't think you can ignore it completely. I think it's important to set up your context for original meaning. But at the same time, I think original meaning is superior to an original intent analysis because original meaning focuses not just on what the group of drafters thought or wanted. It focuses on the product of the entire society that they came from. And in this way, I think it is a far more accurate expression of the people. And why do we care about what the expression of the people is? I think we care about that because I think that's fundamentally what the Constitution is premised on. The Constitution is premised on the idea that it is a document of the sovereign people, not a document premised on what Jefferson thinks or what Madison thinks. They only matter insofar as they are vested by the people with the power to draft. And so original meaning is always going to be, I think, searching for what that will of the people is more so than what the will of an individual is. Right. Um, but you, you still, under this um, approach, you would still have to do some sort of cherry picking. I, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but you'd still have to choose what norms from that time you would use. Because if we look at the time when the Constitution was drafted, the United States of America was largely an agrarian society uh, with a rich tradition of slave owning. So, you know, these these are concepts that have changed dramatically over time. How does that play a role into the way you approach this issue. Yeah, and I'm just going to dovetail off that question real quick because you've used the word organic product and our government's an organic product. And I think that that almost like if, if, if I were a living constitutionalist, I would latch on to that and say, well, yeah, of course it's organic and it's changing over time. And that's why we need the ability to kind of play fast and loose with some of the with the words in the Constitution, particularly they would latch on to the 14th Amendment. So uh, to, to, to bolster off Nico's question. I understand that original meaning looks at the finally assented words of the document, but even that is not going to necessarily confer a meaning in the sense of what they were trying to communicate because, I mean, Madison and Jefferson and Adams rarely agreed on much, you know? All you have to do is watch the musical 1776 to know that. And so, <laughs> I, like, well, how, do we, how do we play into... You know, what was the meaning? I mean, only they were in that room the day they drafted it. And, of course, like, you know, you're a fan of literature. You've you've read literature. There's a hundred interpretations of Nietzsche. Uh, like, so I guess I, I really want to crystallize this idea because I think it, there's a lot of avenues and sideways and byways we could take with this idea. And I think that for our benefit and for the benefit of the listeners, we ought to explore as many as we can. So... Uh, was there a question mark in there? I think so somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to respond to it as pointedly as I can. So I think maybe an illustrative example would, would be the best way to address this. Um, and I can't take credit for this. This was something that, um, you know, one of our speakers, I don't, maybe it wasn't a speaker at the federal society. It might've been a speaker to a Christian legal society event. But like, for instance, you take the word in the First Amendment, um, you know, free exercise of religion. What does religion mean? Because I think original meaning really does look at the words, each word individually, not so much, you know, try to figure out what the words mean in context. The context comes from what we understand the word to mean in that time. So religion at the time 
it's pretty clear from all the other texts and understanding we have, it, it, it required belief in a deity, right? So nobody at that time, and, and we can say this with a very high degree of, of certainty that nobody at the time would have had any concept of the word religion representing anything in which there was not some kind of belief in a deity. So that must be what it means. So regardless of what Madison or Jefferson intended for, um, you know, the way that they thought about religion, that's what it means. So let's say Jefferson thinks, oh, well, I think religion doesn't, you know, entail uh, belief in a deity. It doesn't matter because that's what the people would have thought. And if we premise, if we prefer Madison or Jefferson's definition of that word to what was actually understood by people at the time, I think, you know, I think that's patently undemocratic. I think it's, and I think that negates the whole, like I said, I think that negates the whole purpose and theory of a constitution and Republican government. So, um, I kind of want to, um, follow up on what you just mentioned about how you look at, you know, the democratic process and what the people thought, uh, when you say that, do you refer only to the people in the United States at that time and moment, or do you refer to the world as a whole at that moment in time? Absolutely. I think it needs to be limited to the confines of the particular state in question. Like state capital S, like, as in, yes. okay. All yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Because, uh, assuming the state isn't completely arbitrary and there may be examples of that, especially in post-colonial countries where maybe this isn't a good idea because this oftentimes the boundaries of the state and those countries is, you know, some people randomly slap some stickers on a map and they're like, all right, this is your country now, you know, that maybe that's, you know, that might not be, that might be a context where we say, well, okay, but in our context, we are a very, and we obviously, I don't, we don't necessarily need to go there, but obviously some people would point out, okay, there was, you know, there are already people here and horrible things happened, you know, not to belittle that, but I'm sort of just kind of avoiding that discussion. In general, we are a consensual state, a state that came to be because a bunch of people decided it would, and we all agreed within these territorial bounds to do this. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, within that context, yes. So if, if we want to understand what America is trying to do, if we want to understand what this particular community, this particular society, this particular culture is trying to do, we look to the way language is used in that. And, and why is that important? I think that's important. And I, I sort of come to that understanding because of what I know about language and what I've learned about language. You know, language really is um, oftentimes an expression of a story even. It's the expression of a story of a particular people or a particular community over time. And, and languages tend to, and the way, not only languages, I don't just mean the words, but also the usage, the grammar, the conventions, it tends to carry with it marks of what the people using it and speaking it have been through, what they've come to understand about themselves and the world. And so, you know, I would say for the purposes of government, the language that we're speaking in the United States is not the same language that they're speaking in the United Kingdom. It may be the same for purposes of basic communication, but not for governing. Okay, so uh, I guess contenders of originalism would, would argue that why not extend this analysis to how the United States has evolved over time? Because we, we, we understand that there was a consensus as, as American citizens to uphold uh, values such as free speech and liberty. There's absolutely no way that they could have foreseen uh, methods of communication such as Twitter or, you know, semi-automatic machine guns. How do you interpret these changes in technology 
into so do you get what i'm trying to say there's yeah. some sort of interpretation yeah. that I, must I, take place i think i i i basically had the same question um which was you mentioned religion and how that meant specifically a organization that believed in a deity but there's plenty of americans today that are either buddhists and buddha wasn't a deity or uh zaoist or uh confucian confucian was just a guy uh confucius was just a guy so i mean how do we under your rubric of originalism I, I kind of just want you to Iraq this question. Like, <laughs> what's the issue? What's what's you know what's the rule and the analysis and conclusion? Yeah. So I, I guess the the issue is the meaning of words now is not the same as the meaning of words then. So the issue is, should we really be bound by the past meaning when it's no longer representative of what we think now? The rule would be. You don't have to actually go. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay. So the way I really wanted to answer this. And I was just going to let that play yeah. out though. In a non, in a non triggering way, because I'm very triggered by Iraq at this time. Uh, <laughs> triggered. Um, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I wanted to answer this question. I think, um, which also answers some of the earlier things that both of you posed that I didn't address at the time. Really? <laughs> This is a democracy. We have a legislature. It's supposed to do things. <laughs> That's the answer. If you don't like the way that the law is, if you don't like the way that the it's that it, the constitution's structured, there's a way to change it. And that's the obligation. That is the obligation to and that's how I would frame it, but I this is not original. Um this is a you know a widely held idea among a lot of originalists. We have a debt to our forefathers, our our foremothers, our brothers and sisters, the history and the people that we came from. We have a debt to honor what they did. We have an, a debt to honor their project and their vision in a certain sense. And we are fundamentally dependent upon them. We come from them. We would not be without them and everything that they did. So if we are going to undo any of that, if we're going to change any of that and disregard their wisdom and their blood, sweat, toil, and tears, then we've got to follow the rules. And we've got to, if we're going to make a unique statement about what it now means in our time, then we've got to do the work to make that happen. And so if we don't like the way that they conceived of religion, then we need to do the work of redefining what religion means. And we don't do that at the individual level, we don't have one person say, okay, I'm telling it for everybody. This is how it is. No, we have to agree as a democratic society, as an organic culture, people, however you want to phrase it, we have to make that happen in a cohesive way so that it's actually reflective of who we are. Okay. So this is interesting because it's, it's saying that the, the constitution provides for amendment ratification and that's the route to take. And I agree, it, and it has it has been utilized in the past. But some critics would argue that this doesn't uh, provide for an effective avenue in all circumstances because it doesn't. Uh, it it's not compatible with a rapidly changing society. So, say for issues that are not really contentious, such as uh, marijuana, the usage of marijuana, people are fairly okay with leaving that to the states. Uh, but then when you talk about things such as same-sex marriage, uh, which personally and directly affects, you know, millions of Americans, it seems like a process that would require, you know, the Senate, the House, and the majority of the states to, you know, collaborate to get this done. It's an unsurmountable task, and it's a pressing, uh, a pressing issue. So I don't know what you have to say about that. Well, 
certainly I would say that marriage is a statutory issue and a contractual issue. I don't like to frame it as a contractual issue, but many people made that argument. And so the degree to which the Constitution should have been any part of that, yeah, that's a debate that I've already gotten into in class. I probably shouldn't get into again. But, Why not? We have time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, no, but really, so, so I, here, let me let me oh, let me ahead. let me switch gears to something not 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 so uh, heated. Uh, th- there was no way that the abortion. Fr- oh. <laughs> there was no way that the framers or the people, for that a matter of fact, could have anticipated uh, the need of uh, air force. Right. So the Constitution provides for uh, an army and a naval force, but it doesn't provide for an air force. Uh, so really, there's no constitutional ground for the federal government to have an air force. So how would originalists justify the federal government having an air force? Well, I, I think that traditionally speaking, the air force came to be originally under the army and under the navy. It was understood as like a sub department of that. That's correct. Yeah, I, I don't. But I mean, yeah. I, I guess I can field this one. There is a provision that says Congress can, from time to time, uh, create new armament or like armies. And the original meaning of armies at that time would be any kind of force that that uses lethal weapons to carry out objectives in favor of domestic security. But that's neither here nor there. I want to go back to the religion thing. No, because no, because I think this is important and I don't want to miss it. So is it your opinion that because we've added no constitutional amendments or federal statutes expanding the definition of a religion in a concrete way that we are currently in violation of the constitution in some way or are anybody who's not a deity worship like part of a non-deity religion are they in this legal gray zone i mean i know that congress can make no law abridging the free exercise of religion but if they don't pass a law on it it's technically not a bridge, but it's technically not constitutional under your understanding of the word religion. Well, yeah, I think under the original meaning of religion, um, I don't think it's it's not a violation of the Constitution for the government to decide with statutes to protect religions that wouldn't fit, fall under the definition of religion at the time. I don't think it's... The Constitution is not saying you can't protect religions that don't fall under that. It's just saying that you only have an absolute constitutional right to free exercise if you know your religion is you know worshiping a deity. So um, there are certain religious Americans right now, presumably, who are not availed of the same constitutional protections as deity worshiping religions. Is that your opinion? Under the under the definition of religion, I would say that's accurate, and I I would I need to strongly stress that I personally, as an individual, I would be in favor of offering that constitutional protection to everyone you know within a religion, but that's not what the Constitution says right now. Uh, yeah, I mean that's I've never thought about that before, but that's a kind of crazy conclusion that we just came to. <laughs> you know, and I I think. You know, to try and illustrate some examples. So, you know, people might hear, oh, you know, so that means you don't think the Buddhists have protection and that's messed up because we all know Buddhists and, you know, that's a that's a legitimate religion. I don't think I know any Buddhists. Um, I know Buddhists. I actually have Buddhist family. <laughs> so maybe I, a Saturday morning Buddhist. <laughs> well, and I fundamentally believe in my <laughs> Buddhist family members uh, religious freedom and rights and that they should have the same rights. But, you know, the question of what does the Constitutional Act actually say? 
I think we can sort of see where the constitutional, this definition might be helpful when we see the extreme to which some of these things are taken, where now you can pretty much register that you're a constitutionally protected religion if a bunch of people wear, uh, you know, strainers on their heads and say they worship a flying spaghetti monster because you can't tell me that's not a religion. Yeah, no, Um, John Oliver did it on his show. Exactly, you know, and things like that or things that like we're a religion because we like to meet once a week and talk about our feelings. That's what religion is. You know, uh, it starts to get to a place where it's like, well, I don't, you know, the, the constitution was, you know, created mostly by people who, who did believe in deity. And, uh, you know, at the time people had an understanding of religion, the religion was serious. I mean, this is a serious thing. There's a reason that this is in, in the constitution is because people killed each other over this. They still do. You know, religion is, I think it's supposed to be something that is is fundamentally part of your moral belief, your moral system. It's supposed to have an impact on everything you do. Meeting once a week to talk about your feelings with your friends. I don't know that, I don't know that that meets that. I don't, and I don't think anyone really anticipated that the constitution, the weight of the society, the weight of our tradition and law would be required to protect that. And I, I would say that's more of what illustrates, or or a parody like this flying spaghetti monster. I think that sort of illustrates the wisdom of an originalist approach. But you just touched on a very interesting topic, which is you talked about how um, religion uh, plays a, a big role in moral in a moral system. Uh, and going back to what you've said already is that when you look at the historical context when the Constitution was drafted, principles of Judeo-Christian society played a tremendous role. Some would argue. Uh, so would this be fair to say that as an originalist, when you are interpreting the Constitution, you have to take a Judeo-Christian approach to interpreting the Constitution? Mm, no, I, I definitely don't think that because I, I don't think there's any provision of the Constitution that um, like incorporates that. Well, I, well there's, there's, that's, that's not where I'm yeah. going at. We'll say there's like no, there's no provision incorporating originalism either. So. No, no, yeah, there's, there's no provision. But so, so when you're looking at a question such as same sex marriage, mm-hmm. right? Do you, is it fair to say that someone that upholds original meaning would uh, approach it from a primordially Judeo Christian basis simply because of you're looking at the historical context on which the constitution was drafted and the constitution was drafted and we're not looking at the framers and their religious beliefs we're just looking at the at the democratic consensus at the time which was predominantly judeo-christian um well as regards same-sex marriage i think like i said that's very that's very difficult because the only way the constitution really gets involved in that is through the equal protection clause and um they also find the uh, 14th Amendment due process clause, you know, fundamental liberty, whatever that means. I, you know, so I think it, in my view, uh, and I think a lot of originalists would probably disagree with me on this. In my view, there's definitely no avenue for a 14th Amendment due process clause argument, just because I think that whole analysis is just completely not in the Constitution. I, I think it's just completely out of left field. So I don't buy that part of the argument at all. But the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause argument, I think I think there is an originalist interpretation that allows you to get to same-sex marriage through the Equal Protection Clause. So it's not so much that it's not so much that there's a fundamental right to marriage, but that if states are going to create a statutory marriage, that you know uh, they're going to give it to some citizens and not 
other citizens, there needs to be a reason for that. And if there's no reason for it, other than, you know, arbitrary preference, then the Equal Protection Clause would seem to apply. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think that's actually a pretty good answer. And this kind of plays off of that, which is, well, not really. I want to talk about the fact that I, I mostly subscribe to originalism, but I think that it still has its shortcomings and can't be dispositive of any one question about the Constitution. And here's an example, and this is, you know, sort of an overwrought example. People bring it up all the time, but the inherent vagary of the Eighth Amendment, you know, the cruel and unusual punishment, that is inherently vague language. And had like cruel and unusual both have concrete meanings at the time they were written, but of course that you have to sort of read in the societal context, right, which may not be quantified in any one piece of literature, and everybody's going to have a different opinion at the time that was written of what that meant. And for that reason, I mean, the originalism theory in evaluating that, or we could talk about levying excessive fines. If if we're going to use the standard of the time that was written or the meaning at the time that re- that was written, then like every speeding ticket is unconstitutional right now, you know? So uh, what, where does, how does originalism handle those vagaries that of that flexible language that was just built into the Constitution. Well, I, I really like the Eighth Amendment example because I think I think this is actually an example where the founders were really smart, and I think the requirement that it be it can't be cruel or unusual. So it could not be cruel, but if it's unusual, still not constitutional. It could also be it could also not be unusual, but if it's cruel unconstitutional. And even the use of the word unusual, um, the beautiful thing about that is that word in, in its meaning at the time, even is a totally relative word. It, the intrinsic meaning of that word is relative. So what is unusual necess- even with what the word unusual meant at the time necessarily varies from age to age. So if, if we stop hanging people, even with the meaning of the word at the time, hanging is now unusual. So we can't do it. Uh, if something, yeah. So I, I think the unusual part of it was a really brilliant move on them. And I think originalism, I, I think the original approach, originalism approach still works great there. Um, I'm sorry. What was the other example you had? Uh, the excessive fines, but it's basically oh, yeah. the same yeah. question, you know? Yeah. I, I, I would agree. It, it's, it's, um, that's a little tougher because, yeah, if we look at what the meaning of the word excessive means at the time, do we want to peg that to a dollar amount or do we want to peg that to a concept? And I think most people would say that it's even at the time, most people would peg that to a concept of excessiveness as a proportion rather than a specific dollar amount. I could be wrong on that, but that would be my answer to that. So I want to I want to backtrack a little yeah. bit because so I really like what you said about the Eighth Amendment. I think that's the best argument for the Eighth Amendment and how to interpret it under the originalist rubric. But again, so this still leaves open the question when a judge has to evaluate a law under the constitutionality of the Eighth Amendment, they have to conduct some kind of pseudo survey of what's cruel and unusual. And again, that involves a little bit of mind reading. So originalism has its limits there. Uh, How would you see or how would you like to see a judge handle that type of inquiry? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's a totally fair point. And I do think that when we've, I say we, I think the best way the judge to handle it is this, stretch it to the 
you know, not stretch it as in, you know, a very liberal view, but, but follow, follow it. Originalism interpretation as far as you reasonably can. And then if we still, if we're still having trouble, you know, we've reached the limit of what we can possibly conceive with our mind, uh, under that framework, then I think that's essentially a sign. I, I think that essentially means that if, if we've, if we've reached the possible end of that inquiry, that's a sign that, all right, we have done our duty to society. We have done our duty to the constitution. We've done our duty to our responsibilities. We really have done that. We're at the threshold. We can now venture into that dangerous gray area, only knowing first that we have done the fullest extent of our duty to our country, to our, our and our countrymen. And I think that, I think that's the, that's really, you know, when, when we would be justified in departing, I suppose. Uh, some originalists would quibble with that um, answer just because they would get to the point where originalist takes them and then say, if there's still an unanswered question and there's a statute on the books in some state, you know, then we have to defer to the will of the people of that state. And I mean, were that the case, we would still have, you know, Skinner versus Oklahoma, we'd still be castrating the mentally ill or, or something like that, you know? So, so you do think that judges are equipped to make some of these uh, more granular or speculative calls, you know? I think only after absolutely demonstrating that as maximal an effort as possible has been made to honor the Constitution and honor our tradition and our culture. You know, I, I do think we're human beings. Judges are human beings. I don't know of any originalist or originalism proponent who honestly believes that we've got to stretch it to the point where it would result in like completely irrational and absurdist um, views. And I think usually the way that you do that is the Scalia approach, which is looking to the tradition, looking to the common law and and saying, okay, like when we're really, at, you know, at the end of what we can reasonably do, we do have a tradition. We can draw on that tradition because that's still at least tied to our story as a, as a country, as a people. Um, yeah, um, it's going to shift gears a little bit. Um, Take it away. But you talked about how we judges have to honor culture and tradition. However, and I mean, I'm, some that criticize originalism, especially original meaning, would say that this, this, that way of thought is out of touch with today's reality because what we consider today tradition and culture and value has that has drastically changed so so to just go back to when the constitution was drafted it's patriarchal and it excludes uh, minorities and ethnicities because today we have or at least we're striving for equality of opportunity for all sexes and all genders and all races and most of these people participating in today's democracy did not have a voice back then so what what do you have to say on that and well, I, I think that underscores the importance of a participatory democracy and an active and healthy legislature. I, I think that's the number one thing, is that if you're going to make the argument that things are different now, if you're going to make the argument that our culture has changed, then do it. Change it. Uh, write that into law. Lobby for it. Express to the government and to your community what your will is. Uh and, and then we will know for certain that that is indeed what has occurred. The culture has changed. The meaning has changed. Um, and that's 
you know, what people used to do. Women were enfranchised through constitutional amendment. Uh, slavery was abolished through constitutional amendment. A lot of the details were fleshed out through uh, statutes, federal statutes. Well, slavery was abolished through constitutional amendment at, after, uh, you know, a bloody, um, violent conflict. Um, yeah. Because the states could not agree uh, on how to handle the issue. Uh, but, you know, just to go back to what you just answered, you know, some would say that the political structure that the United States has built is oppressive or has created oppressive laws that has marginalized societies. Um, you know, some would cite to like the Jim Crow era or, or, or things like this. So even if you try to um, pursue change through legislative action, it's extremely difficult for minorities to achieve this. And I guess some would argue that you do need some judicial intervention. Do you still hold strong to the fact? So how, how would you answer to those concerns that, that the judicial system is rigged? against them? Well, unfortunately, I, I truly believe there aren't easy answers to this. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people hearing me say that will be like, ah, the easy to say to you, privileged white male, um, white straight cisgendered white male, not at all concerned with what I have to say or why I'm saying it, but just assuming because of the way I am, that that's why I think that digression aside. Um, yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to that because I think there's just always an inherent tension in any democratic society where if you don't have the numbers, it's very difficult to fight for your rights. And I'm very not there's not not for a second. Do I think that that is not an incredibly huge problem that presents a lot of that, that has not only presents the threat of but has demonstrably resulted in unacceptable and oppressive policies and massive human suffering and unfairness. And the issue is, is there something unique about this? Does our system uniquely allow for this compared to any other system? And I, I think the answer to that has to be no. You know, the question really is, well, what else are we supposed to do? Should we, in fact, give judges the power to um, just decide the way that the law should be and the way society should be governed. And I think as much as a good judge wielding that power would definitely do many great things as there, you know, there have been many great judicial decisions that have resulted in the expansion of civil liberties and that have created, corrected some of these injustices. We look at those positive things and we say, that's wonderful. And I'm thankful for that. And I am glad that those sorts of things happen. But on the other side of the coin, there is the very strong possibility that, a bad judge, an immoral judge without restraint, you know, would in fact do the opposite, which there is plenty of evidence of. How was segregation maintained in spite of the fact that it seems to plainly conflict with some constitutional provisions? You know, we think about Justice Taney uh, upholding the idea that um, slaves are, are property, not, not people. So courts can just as easily... I think with this power untethered to the constitution, make laws and things that are horrible and morally incorrect as they are to, to do things that are right. And because we are not going to subscribe to authoritarian rule, we have to accept that sometimes progress will be slow. Sometimes horrible things will happen in a majoritarian system. And Unfortunately, that's the way the world is. We might wish that the world were different were different than it is. We might wish that we lived in another reality where all men were angels and everybody always did the right thing. 
that's not the world we live in. Right. So, so two follow-up questions to what you said. One is um, uh, people such as uh, Professor Juan Perea, which you had here as your first guest. I did, I did. Um, he would argue that, in fact, the Constitution itself uh, had racist components to it. Uh, and this has allowed people that uh, uh, hold to originalist beliefs to that allowed them to prolong uh, uh, racist holdings. So, so maybe you can address that briefly. And then the second point I had was even if we prescribe to the remedy of pursuing purely legislative ch uh, action through legislative change, there's still a fear that once a law is passed, the judicial branch will deem it unconstitutional simply because of the way it is, uh, you, know, content, you know, opposing side would say because of the way that it's being interpreted, right? So if, if you're simply looking at the tradition and culture of when the Constitution was drafted, uh, even if there is a law enacted through legislative action, it, there's a possibility or the danger that it will be uh, uh, held unconstitutional. Yeah, I think the most recent example that living constitutionalists like to latch onto is Hobby Lobby, where they, they saw that as a big victory for women's rights, the fact that it was mandatory contraceptive be provided through health insurance. And then they're like, okay, well, now we're fulfilling your wishes, originalists. We passed legislation, and you've held it to be unconstitutional. I mean, that was what they were yelling about when Gorsuch was being confirmed to the Supreme Court, because, of course, he wrote the under uh, the appellate court decision on that. So I guess that plays off your question, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I would say sometimes there are going to be statutes that are, yeah, they're not going to be constitutional. And then when you run into that problem and he's like, I've got the statute and it, there's a moral imperative and it has broad support, but it's still not constitutional. Well, then you've got to change the constitution. And if you can't do that, if you don't have enough support to change the constitution to make your proposed legislation constitutional, then maybe your proposed legislation isn't actually that popular. Maybe your proposed legislation isn't actually very representative of the people uh, or the culture at, of the time. I think we really shot ourselves in the foot really hard when we amended the Constitution to um, result in direct election of senators. I think that that phenomenon made it much, much more difficult to amend the Constitution because now that lobbying is such a huge part of Senate elections. It makes sense for it to be a huge part of, of congressional elections, but Senate elections used to be insulated from a lot of those majoritarian and money-influenced things. Uh, senators no longer have a responsibility to their states. They just have a responsibility to a teeny tiny plurality of votes in their states. So we're, we really got away from a, there being a body in Congress that would act in a way to sort of say, okay, what does my state think? What does my community think? Um, what's the right thing to do to be a true representative here? And I, you know, now yeah, they're supposed to be the, the cooling saucer for the <laughs> tea for people that don't know what I'm talking about. Who was it that wrote? Do you know, do you remember who wrote that? Mm -mm, uh, I think it was Jefferson who wrote that uh, the house is supposed to be the hot kettle of tea. And then the Senate's supposed to be the cooling saucer in which the tea sits yeah, and, I, and the other thing I want to say is this problem, the Hobby Lobby problem, statute trying to be originalist but still isn't comporting with the Constitution. So one of the biggest things that causes this is judges not being originalist. So when judges 
construe the constitution to mean something that it clearly doesn't. And then they build common law on top of that. We have so many layers now uh, um, that there is no longer any incentive to change the constitution because we know now that an activist will do it for us. We don't have to participate in the democratic process. We just need to find an old white guy to do it for us. (laughs) Well, RBG is hardly an old white guy. Uh, well, okay, fine. Yes, an old white guy or, or an old white or an old white woman. I'm I'm referring more more to Roe v. Wade. You and know. Sotomayor will be an old, not white woman. Too. True. No, the court is much more diverse now. But I, you know, I'm 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 referring no, more to so the Roe. I know v. You're, you're yeah. the point you're trying to make. Yes. I'm just giving a hard time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what are your closing thoughts? And again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, my closing thoughts are because of the world we live in today. I, I want to stress. Uh, well, I want to first ask for uh, to anybody listening for the most charitable and merciful possible reading of anything that I've said that you could give, construing anything I've said as as uh, favorably and with as much of a benefit of the doubt. And I'm not just saying this for self selfish reasons to, to cover my behind, but also because I think that is probably along with some of the constitutional issues we've discussed that's that's a fundamental problem in our society that i think colors and um distorts a lot of our political conversations as and religious conversations and cultural conversations is we want to automatically assume that whatever someone is saying that does not appear to be what we are saying or what we believe it's the worst thing it's it's they're our enemy they don't want the same thing as me. And if you do that, first, you might not hear what the other person is actually saying. And second, even if you do, you uh, might not be in a position to actually do the work and communication with them that would be required to either change their mind or come to uh, an, an amenable compromise. And that's what we need. Because if, we, if we're serious that, that we want to change the law and we want to change our society and culture... It's not going to happen unless we can compromise and we can communicate with one another. That's what we've lost, and I think that's what we need to gain back. And that's why we have dialogue to know, though. Thanks. I think that was a great message to end on. Yeah, I agree. All right. I agree. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Seth. Bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, bum.